Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 2 of Richard II, Makers of History This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Richard II, Makers of History by Jacob Abbott Chapter 2 Quarrels, A.D. 1327 in the days of the predecessors of King Richard II, notwithstanding the claim made by the kings of a right on their part to reign on account of the influence exercised by their government in promoting law and order throughout the community, the country was really kept in a continual state of turmoil by the quarrels which the different parties concerned in this government were engaged in with each other and with surrounding nations. These quarrels were of various kinds. One, the kings, as we have already seen, were perpetually quarrelling with the nobles. Two, the different branches of the royal family were often engaged in bitter and cruel wars with each other, arising from their conflicting claims to the crown. Three, the kings of different countries were continually making forays into each other's territories, or waging war against each other with fire and sword. These wars arose sometimes from a lawless spirit of depredation, and sometimes were waged to resent personal insults or injuries, real or imaginary. 4. The Pope of Rome, who claimed jurisdiction over the Church in England as well as elsewhere, was constantly coming into collision with the civil power. From some one or other of these several causes, the Kingdom of England, in the time of Richard's predecessors, was seldom at peace. Some great quarrel or other was continually going on. There was a great deal of difficulty during the reigns that immediately preceded that of Richard II between the kings and the Pope. The Pope, as has already been remarked, was considered the head of the whole Christian Church, and he claimed rights in respect to the appointment of the archbishops and bishops and other ecclesiastics in England, and in respect to the government and control of the monasteries and the abbeys, and to the appropriation and expenditure of the revenues of the Church, which sometimes interfered very seriously with the views and designs of the king. Hence there arose continual disputes and quarrels. The Pope never came himself to England, but he often sent a grand ambassador, called a legate, who travelled with great pomp and parade, and with many attendants, and assumed in all his doings a most lofty and superior air. In the contests in which these legates were engaged with the kings, the legates almost always came off conquerors through the immense influence which the Pope exercised over the consciences and religious fears of the mass of the people. Sometimes the visits of the legates and their proceedings among the people led to open broils. At one time, for instance, the legate was at Oxford, where the great university, now so renowned throughout the world, already existed. He was lodged at an abbey there, and some of the scholars of the university, wishing to pay their respects to him, as they said, went in a body to the gates of the abbey and demanded admission. But the porter kept them back and refused to let them in. Upon this a great noise and tumult arose, the students pressing against the gates to get in, and the porter, assisted by the legate's men, whom he called to his assistance, resisting them. 
in the course of the fray one or two of the students succeeded in forcing their way in as far as to the kitchen of the abbey and there one of them called upon a cook to help them but the cook instead of helping them dipped out a ladle full of hot broth from a kettle and threw it into the student's face whereupon the other students cried out as the ancient chronicler relates it quote, what mean we to suffer this villainy End quote. and taking an arrow he set it in his bow having caught up these weapons in the beginning of the fray and let it fly at the cook and killed him on the spot this of course greatly increased the excitement more students came in and so great was the tumult and confusion that the legate was in terror for his life and he fled and concealed himself in the belfry of the abbey after lying in this place of concealment for some time until the tumult was in some measure appeased he crept out secretly fled across the thames and then mounting a horse made the best of his way to london he made complaint to the king of the indignity which he had endured and the king immediately sent a troop of armed men with an earl at the head of them to rescue the remainder of the legate's men that were still imprisoned in the abbey and also to seize all the students that had been concerned in the riot and bring them to london the earl proceeded to execute his commission he apprehended thirty of the students and taking them to a neighbouring castle he shut them up there as prisoners in the end besides punishing the individual students who had made this disturbance the regents and masters of the university were compelled to come to london and there to go barefooted through the principal street to a church where the legate was and humbly to supplicate his forgiveness for the indignity which he had suffered and so with great difficulty they obtained their pardon the students in those days as students are apt to be in all countries and in all ages were a very impulsive and in some respects a lawless set whenever they deemed themselves injured they pursued the object of their hostility in the most reckless and relentless manner at one time a member of the university became so excited against the king on account of some injury real or imaginary which he had suffered that he resolved to kill him so he feigned himself mad and in this guise he loitered many days about the palace of woodstock where the king was then residing until at length he became well acquainted with all the localities then watching his opportunity he climbed by night through a window into a bedchamber where he thought the king was lying he crept up to the bedside and throwing back the clothes he stabbed several times into the bed with a dagger he however stabbed nothing but the bed itself and the pillow for the king that night as it happened lay in another chamber as the student was making his escape he was spied by one of the chambermaids named margaret Bisset. margaret immediately made a great outcry and the other servants coming up seized the student and carried him off to prison he was afterward tried and was convicted of treason in having made an attempt upon the king's life and was hanged before his death he said that he had been employed to kill the king by another man a certain william de mariche who was a noted and prominent man of those days this william de mariche was afterward taken and brought to trial but he solemnly denied that he had ever instigated the student to commit the crime he was however condemned and executed and according to the custom in those days in the case of persons convicted of treason his body was subjected after his death to extreme indignities and then was divided into four quarters one of which was sent to each of the four principal cities of the kingdom and was publicly exhibited in them as a warning to all men of the dreadful consequences of attempting such a crime great pains were taken in those days to instill into the minds of all men the idea that to kill a king was the worst crime that a human being could commit one of the writers of the time said that in wounding and killing a prince a man was guilty of homicide 
parricide, christicide, and even deicide, all in one. That is, that in the person of a king slain by the hand of the murderer, the criminal strikes not only at a man, but at his own father, and at Christ his Saviour and God. A great many strange and superstitious notions were entertained by the people in respect to kings. These superstitions were encouraged even by the scholars and historians of those times, who might be supposed to know better. But it was so much for their interest to write what should be agreeable to the king and to his court, that they were by no means scrupulous in respect to the tales which they told, provided they were likely to be pleasing to those in authority, and to strengthen the powers and prestige of the reigning families. The neighbouring countries with which the kings of England were most frequently at war in those days were Scotland, Wales, and France. These wars arose not from any causes connected with the substantial interests of the people of England, but from the grasping ambition of the kings, who wished to increase the extent of their territories, and thus add to their revenues and to their power. Sometimes their wars arose from private and personal quarrels, and in these cases thousands of lives were often sacrificed, and great sums of money expended to revenge slights or personal injuries of comparatively little consequence. For instance, one of the wars with Wales broke out in this manner. Leolin, who was then the reigning prince of Wales, sent to France, and requested the king of France that he might have in marriage a certain lady named Lady Eleanor, who was then residing in the French king's court. The motive of Leolin in making this proposal was not that he bore any love for the Lady Eleanor, for very likely he had never seen her, but she was the daughter of an English earl named Montfort, Earl of Leicester, who was an enemy of the King of England, and having been banished from the country, had taken refuge in France. Leolin thought that by proposing and carrying into effect this marriage, he would at once gratify the King of France and spite the King of England. The King of France at once assented to the proposed marriage, but the King of England was extremely angry, and he determined to prevent the marriage if he could. He accordingly gave the necessary orders, and the little fleet which was sent from France to convey Eleanor to Wales was intercepted off the Scilly Islands on the way, and the whole bridal party were taken prisoners and sent to London. As soon as Leolin heard this, he of course was greatly enraged, and he immediately set off with an armed troop, and made a foray upon the English frontiers, killing all the people that lived near the border, plundering their property, and burning up all the towns and villages that came in his way. There followed a long war. The English were on the whole the victors in the war, and at the end of it a treaty was made by which Leolin's life, it is true, was restored to him, but his kingdom was brought almost completely under the power of the English kings. Of course Leolin was extremely dissatisfied with this result, and he became more and more uneasy in the enthralled position to which the English king had reduced him, and finally a new war broke out. Leolin was beaten in this war, too, and in the end, in a desperate battle that was fought among the mountains, he was slain. He was slain near the beginning of the battle. The man who killed him did not know at the time who it was that he had killed, though he knew from his armour that he was some distinguished personage or other. When the battle was ended, this man went back to the place to see, and finding that it was the Prince Leolin whom he had slain, he was greatly pleased. He cut off the head from the body, and sent it as a present to the king. The king sent the head to London, there to be paraded through the streets on the end of a long pole as a token of victory. After being carried in this manner through Cheapside, then the principal street of London, in order that it might be gazed upon by all the people, it was set up on a high pole near the tower, and there remained a long time, a trophy, as the king regarded it, of the glory and renown of a victory, 
but really an emblem of cruel injustice and wrong perpetrated by a strong against a weaker neighbour. Not long after this, the King of England succeeded in taking Prince David, the brother of Leolin, and under the pretense that he had been guilty of treason, he cut off his head too, and set it up on another pole at the Tower of London, by the side of his brothers. It must be admitted, however, that although these ancient warriors were generally extremely unjust in their dealings with each other, and often barbarously cruel, they were still sometimes actuated by high and noble sentiments of honour and generosity. On one occasion, for instance, when this same Edward I, who was so cruel in his treatment of Leolin, was at war in Scotland, and was besieging a castle there, he wrote one day certain dispatches to send to his council in London, and having inquired for a speedy and trusty messenger to send them by, a certain Welshman named Lewin was sent to him. The king delivered the package to Lewin enclosed in a box, and also gave him money to bear his expenses on the way, and then sent him forth. Lewin, however, instead of setting out on his journey, went to a tavern, and there, with a party of his companions, he spent the money which he had received in drink, and passed the night carousing. In the morning he said that he must set out on his journey, but before he went he must go back to the castle and have one parting shot at the garrison. Under this pretext he took his crossbow and proceeded toward the castle wall, but when he got there, instead of shooting his arrows, he called out to the wardens whom he saw on guard over the gate, and asked them to let down a rope and draw him up into the castle, as he had something of great importance to communicate to the governor of it. So the wardens let down a rope, and drew Lewin up, and then took him to the governor, who was then at breakfast. Lewin held out the box to the governor, saying, quote, Here, sir, look in this box, and you may read all the secrets of the King of England. He said, moreover, that he would like to have the governor give him a place on the wall, and see whether he could handle a crossbow or not against the English army. Gunpowder and guns had not been introduced as means of warfare at this time. The most formidable weapon that was then employed was the crossbow. With the crossbow a sort of square-headed arrow was used called a quarrel. The governor, instead of accepting these offers on the part of Lewin, immediately went out to one of the turrets on the wall, and calling to the English soldiers whom he saw below, he directed them to tell the King of England that one of his servants had turned traitor, and had come into the castle with a box of dispatches. Quote, and tell him, said the governor, that if he will send some persons here to receive him, I will let the man down to them over the wall, and also restore the box of dispatches, which I have not opened at all. Immediately Lord Spencer, one of the king's chief officers, came to the wall, and the governor of the castle let Lewin down to him by a rope, and also passed the box of letters down. The King of England was so much pleased with this generosity on the part of the governor, that he immediately ceased his operations against the castle, though he caused Lewin to be hanged on a gallows of the highest kind. But to return to Wales. After the death of Leolin and his brother, the Kingdom of Wales was annexed to England, and has ever since remained a possession of the British crown. The King of England partly induced the people of Wales to consent to this annexation by promising that he would still give them a native of Wales for prince. They thought he meant by this that they should continue to be governed by one of their own royal family, but what he really meant was that he would make his own son Prince of Wales. This son of his was then an infant. He was born in Wales. This happened from the fact that the King, in the course of his conquests in that country, had seized upon a place called Carnarvon and had built a castle there, in a beautiful situation on the Straits of Menai, which separate the mainland from the Isle of Anglesey. When his castle was finished, the king brought the queen to Carnarvon to see it, 
and while she was there her child, Prince Edward, who afterward became Edward II, was born. This was the origin of the title of Prince of Wales, which has been held ever since by the oldest sons of the English sovereigns. This first English Prince of Wales led a most unhappy life, and his history illustrates in a most striking manner one of the classes of quarrels enumerated at the head of this chapter, namely, the disputes and contentions that often prevailed between the sovereign of the country and his principal nobles. While he was a young man, he formed a very intimate friendship with another young man named Pierce Gaveston. This Gaveston was a remarkably handsome youth, and very prepossessing and agreeable in his manners, and he soon gained a complete ascendancy over the mind of young Edward. He was, however, very wild and dissolute in his habits, and the influence which he exerted upon Edward was extremely bad. As long as the common people only were injured by the lawless behaviour of these young men, the king seems to have borne with them. But at last, in a riot in which they were concerned, they broke into the park of a bishop, and committed damage there which the king could not overlook. He caused his son, the young prince, to be seized and put into prison, and he banished Gaveston from the country, and forbade his son to have anything more to do with him. This was in 1305, when the prince was twenty-one years of age. In 1307, two years later, the king died, and the prince succeeded him, under the title of King Edward II. He immediately sent for Gaveston to return to England, where he received him with the greatest joy. He made him a duke, under the title of Duke of Cornwall, and as for the bishop whose park he and Gaveston had broken into, and on whose complaint Gaveston had been banished, in order to punish him for these offences, the young king seized him and delivered him into Gaveston's hands as a prisoner, and at the same time confiscated his estates and gave them to Gaveston. Gaveston sent the bishop about from castle to castle as a prisoner, according as his caprice or fancy dictated. These things made the barons and nobles of England extremely indignant, for Gaveston, besides being a corrupt and dissipated character, was in fact a foreigner by birth, being a native of Gascony in France. His character seemed to grow worse with his exultation, and he and Edward spent all their time in rioting and excess, and in perpetrating every species of iniquity. Edward had been for some time engaged to be married to the Princess Isabel, the daughter of the King of France. About six months after his accession to the throne, he set off for France to be married. It was his duty, according to the ancient usages of the realm, to appoint some member of the royal family, or some prominent person from the ancient nobility of the country, to govern the kingdom as regent during his absence. But instead of this he put Gaveston in his place, and clothed him with all the powers of a viceroy. Edward was married to Isabel in Paris with great pomp and parade. Isabel was very beautiful, and was a general favourite. It is said that there were four kings and three queens present at the marriage ceremony. Edward, however, seemed to feel very little interest either in his bride or in the occasion of his marriage, but manifested a great impatience to get through with the ceremonies, so as to return to England and to Gaveston. As soon as it was possible, he set out on his return. The bridal party were met at their landing by Gaveston, accompanied by all the principal nobility, who came to receive and welcome them at the frontier. The king was overjoyed to see Gaveston again. He fell into his arms, hugged and kissed him, and called him his dear brother, while on the other hand he took very little notice of the nobles and high officers of state. Everybody was surprised and displeased at this behaviour, but as Edward was king there was nothing to be said or done. Soon afterward the coronation took place, and on this occasion all the honours were allotted to Gaveston, 
to the utter neglect of the ancient and hereditary dignitaries of the realm. Gaveston carried the crown, and walked before the king and queen, and acted in all respects as if he were the principal personage in the country. The old nobles were, of course, extremely indignant at this. Hitherto they had expressed their displeasure at the king's favouritism by private murmurings and complaints, but now they thought it was time to take some concerted public action to remedy the evil. So they met together, and framed a petition to be sent to the king, in which, though under the form of a request, they in fact demanded that Gaveston should be dismissed from his offices, and required to leave the country. The king was alarmed. He, however, could not think of giving his favourite up so he said that he would return them an answer to the petition by and by, and he immediately began to pursue a more conciliatory course toward the nobles. But the effect of his attempts at conciliation was spoiled by Gaveston's behaviour. He became more and more proud and ostentatious every day. He appeared in all public places, and everywhere he took precedence of the highest nobles of the land, and prided himself on outshining them in the pomp and parade which he displayed. He attended all the jousts and tournaments, and as he was really a very handsome and well-formed man, and well-skilled in the warlike sports and fashion in those days, he bore away most of the great prizes. He thus successfully rivalled the other nobles in gaining the admiration of the ladies of the court and the applause of the multitude, and made the nobles hate him more than ever. Things went on in this way worse and worse, until at last the general sentiment became so strong against Gaveston that the Parliament, when it met, took a decided stand in opposition to him and insisted that he should be expelled from the country. A struggle followed, but the king was obliged to yield. Gaveston was required to leave the country, and to take an oath never to return. It was only on these conditions that the Parliament would uphold the government, and thus the king saw that he must lose either his friend or his crown. Gaveston went away. The king accompanied him to the seashore, and took leave of him there in the most affectionate manner, promising to bring him back again as soon as he could possibly do it he immediately began to manoeuvre for the accomplishment of this purpose. In the meantime, as Gaveston had only sworn to leave England, the king sent him to Ireland, and made him governor-general of that country, and there Gaveston lived in greater power and splendour than ever. At length, in little more than a year, Gaveston came back. His oath not to return was disposed of by means of a dispensation which King Edward obtained for him from the Pope, absolving him from the obligation of it. When he was reinstated in the king's court, he behaved more scandalously than ever. He revenged himself upon the nobles who had been the means of sending him away, by ridiculing them and giving them nicknames. One of them he called Joseph the Jew, because his face was pale and thin, and bore in some respects a Jewish expression. Another, the Earl of Warwick, he called the Black Dog of Ardennes. When the Earl heard this, he said, clenching his fist, quote, very well, I'll make him feel the black dog's teeth yet." In a word, the nobles were excited to the greatest pitch of rage and indignation against the favourite, and after various struggles and contentions between them and the king, they at length broke out into an open revolt. The king at this time, with Gaveston and his wife, were at Newcastle, which is in the north of England. The barons fell upon him here with the intention of seizing Gaveston, both the king and Gaveston, however, succeeded in making their escape. Gaveston fled to a castle and shut himself up there. The king escaped by sea, leaving his wife behind, at the mercy of the conspirators. The barons treated the queen with respect, but they pressed on at once in pursuit of Gaveston. They laid siege to the castle where he sought refuge. Finding that the castle could not hold out long, 
Gaveston thought it best to surrender while it yet remained in his power to make terms with his enemies. So he agreed to give himself up, they stipulating that they would do him no bodily harm, but only confine him, and that the place of his confinement should be one of his own castles. When he came down into the courtyard of the castle, after signing this stipulation, he found there ready to receive him the Earl of Warwick, the man to whom he had given the nickname of the Black Dog of Ardennes. The Earl was at the head of a large force. He immediately took Gaveston into custody, and galloped off with him at the head of his troop to his own castle. The engraving represents a view of this fortress as it appeared in those days. When they had got Gaveston safe into this castle, the chiefs held a sort of council of war to determine what should be done with their prisoner. While they were consulting on the subject, intending apparently to spare his life as they had agreed, someone called out, quote, It has cost you a great deal of trouble to catch the fox, and now if you let him go, you will have a great deal more trouble in hunting him again. End quote. This consideration decided them, so they took the terrified prisoner, and in spite of his piteous cries for mercy, they hurried him away to a solitary place a mile or two from the castle, and there, on a little knoll by the side of the road, they cut off his head. One would have supposed that by this time the king would have been cured of the folly of devoting himself to favourites, but he was not. He mourned over the death of Gaveston at first with bitter grief, and when this first paroxysm of his sorrow was past, it was succeeded with a still more bitter spirit of revenge. He immediately took the field against his rebellious barons, and a furious civil war ensued. He soon, too, found a new favourite, or rather two favourites. They were brothers, and their names were Spencer. They are called in history the Spencers, or the Dispensers. The quarrels and wars which took place between the king and these favourites on one hand, and the barons and nobles on the other, were continued for many years. The queen took sides with the nobles against her husband and the Spencers. She fled to France, and there formed an intimacy with a young nobleman named Mortimer who joined himself to her, and thenceforth accompanied her and made common cause with her against her husband. With this Mortimer she raised an army, and sailing from Flanders she landed in England. On landing she summoned the barons to join her, and took the field against her husband. The king was beaten in this war, and fled again on board a vessel, intending to make his escape by sea. The two Spencers, one after the other, were taken prisoners, and both were hung on gibbets fifty feet high. They were hung in their armour, and after they were dead their bodies were taken down and treated as it was customary to treat the bodies of traitors. In the midst of these proceedings the barons held a sort of parliament, and made a solemn declaration that the king, by his flight, had abdicated the throne, and they proclaimed his son, the young Prince of Wales, then about fourteen years old, king, under the title of Edward III. In the meantime the king himself, who had attempted to make his escape by sea, was tossed about in a storm for some days until at last he was driven on the coast in South Wales. He concealed himself for some days in the mountains. Here he was hunted about for a time, until he was reduced to despair by his destitution and his sufferings, when at length he came forth and delivered himself up to his enemies. He was made prisoner, and immediately sent to Kenilworth Castle, and there secured. Afterward he was brought to trial. He was accused of shameful indolence and incapacity, and also of cowardice, cruelty, and oppression and of having brought the country, by his vices and maladministration, to the verge of ruin. He was convicted on these charges, and the queen, his wife, confirmed the verdict. Not being quite sure, after all, that by these means the dethronement of the king was legally complete, the Parliament sent a solemn deputation to Kenilworth Castle to depose the monarch in form. 
the king was brought out to meet this deputation in a great hall of the castle. He came just as he was, dressed in a simple black gown. The deputation told him that he was no longer king, that all allegiance had been withdrawn from him on the part of the people, and that henceforth he must consider himself as a private man. As they said this, the steward of the household came forward and broke his white wand, the badge of his office, in token that the household was dissolved, and he declared that by that act all the king's servants were discharged and freed. This was a ceremony that was usually performed at the death of a king, and it was considered in this case as completely and finally terminating the reign of Edward. The delegation also exacted from him something which they considered as a resignation of the crown. His son, the young prince, it was said, was unwilling to ascend the throne unless the barons could induce his father voluntarily to abdicate his own rights to it. They were the more desirous in this case of completely and forever distinguishing all of King Edward's claims, because they were afraid that there might be a secret party in his favour, and that that party might gain strength, and finally come out openly against them in civil war, in which case, if they were worsted, they knew that they would all be hung as traitors. Indeed, soon after this time, it began to appear that there were, in fact, some persons who were disposed to sympathise with the king. His queen, Isabel, who had been acting against him during the war, was now joined with Mortimer, her favourite, and they too held pretty much the whole control of the government, for the new king was yet too young to reign. Many of the monks and other ecclesiastics of the time openly declared that Isabel was guilty of great sin in thus abandoning her husband for the sake of another man. They said that she ought to leave Mortimer and go and join her husband in his prison. And it was not long before it began to be rumoured that secret plots were forming to attempt the king's deliverance from his enemies. This alarmed the nobles more than ever. The queen and some others wrote sharp letters to the keepers of the castle for dealing so gently with their prisoner, and gave them hints that they ought to kill him. In the end the fallen monarch was transported from one fortress to another, until at length he came to Berkeley Castle. The inducement which led Mortimer and the Queen to send the King to these different places was the hope that some one or other of the keepers of the castles would divine their wishes in regard to him and put him to death. But no one did so. The keeper of Berkeley Castle, indeed, instead of putting his prisoner to death, seemed inclined to take compassion on him, and to treat him more kindly even than the others had done. Accordingly, after waiting some time, Mortimer seized an opportunity when Lord Berkeley, having gone away from home, was detained away some days by sickness, to send two fierce and abandoned men, named Gourney and Ogle, to the castle, with instructions to kill the king in some way or other, but if possible in such a manner as to make it appear that he died a natural death. These men tried various plans without success. They administered poisons, and resorted to various other diabolical contrivances. At last, one night, dreadful outcries and groans were heard coming from the king's apartment. They were accompanied from time to time with shrieks of terrible agony. These sounds were continued for some time, and they were heard in all parts of the castle and in many of the houses of the town. The truth was, the executioners whom Mortimer had sent were murdering the king in a manner almost too horrible to be described. The people in the castle and in the town knew very well what these dreadful outcries meant. They were filled with consternation and horror at the deed and they spent the time in praying to God that he would receive the soul of the unhappy victim. After this, Mortimer and the Queen for two or three years held pretty nearly supreme power in the realm, though of course they governed in the name of the young king, who was yet only fourteen or fifteen years of age. There was, however, 
a great secret hatred of Mortimer among all the old nobility of the realm. This ill-will ripened at last into open hostility. A conspiracy was formed to destroy Mortimer, and to depose the Queen-Mother from her power, and to place young Edward in possession of the kingdom. Mortimer discovered what was going on, and he went for safety, with Edward and the Queen, to the castle of Nottingham, where he shut himself up, and placed a strong guard at the gates and on the walls. This castle of Nottingham was situated upon a hill, on the side of which was a range of excavations which had been made in a chalky stone by some sort of quarrying. There was a subterranean passage from the interior of one of these caves which led to the castle. The castle itself was strongly guarded, and every night Isabel required the warden, on locking the gates, to bring the keys to her, and she kept them by her bedside. The governor of the castle, however, made an agreement with Lord Montacute, who was the leader in the conspiracy against Mortimer, to admit him to the castle at night through the subterranean passage. It seems that Mortimer and the Queen did not know of the existence of this communication. They did not even know about the caves, for the mouths of them were at that time concealed by rubbish and brambles. It was near midnight when Montacute and the party who went with him entered the passage. They crowded their way through the bushes and brambles till they found the entrance of the cave, and then went in. They were all completely armed, and they carried torches to light their way. They crept along the gloomy passageway until at last they reached the door which led up into the interior of the castle. Here the governor was ready to let them in. As soon as they entered, they were joined by young Edward at the foot of the main tower. They left their torches here, and Edward led them up a secret staircase to a dark chamber. They crept softly into this room and listened. They could hear in an adjoining hall the voices of Mortimer and several of his adherents, who were holding a consultation. They waited a few minutes, and then, making a rush into the passageway which led to the hall, they killed two knights who were on sentry there to guard the door, and immediately bursting into the apartment made Mortimer and all his friends prisoners. The queen, who was in her bed in an adjoining room at this time, rushed frantically out when she heard the noise of the affray, and with piteous entreaties and many tears she begged and prayed Edward, her quote-unquote sweet son, as she called him, to spare the gentle Mortimer, quote, her dearest friend, her well-beloved cousin, end quote. The conspirators did spare him at that time. They took him prisoner and bore him away to a place of safety. He was soon afterward brought to trial on a charge of treason, and hanged. Isabel was deprived of all her property, and shut up in a castle as a prisoner of state. In this castle she afterward lived nearly thirty years, in lonely misery, and then died. The adjoining engraving represents a near view of the subterranean passage by which Lord Montacute and his party gained admission to the castle of Nottingham. It is known in modern times as Mortimer's Hole. End of chapter 2